Tonight on Arena, Chris Rodmill and Kotlo Kuig on their film Inishmiaunli Dorongolding, and we look back at the albums that make up the island years of Tom Waits. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and of course, if you want to listen and watch, you can do so on RTE.ie forward slash radio forward slash watch hyphen live. Nineteen seventy three was the year that a young, eager film student, Chris Rodmill, took himself off to Inishmian to document life on the island. At that time, there was no electricity, no running water on this, the least populated of the three uh, Aran Islands off the coast of Connemara in County Nagalieva. Chris made the film Another Life with the footage that he shot there. The film shows the harshness but also the beauty of the place. We see a strong community but one that knows it's facing an existential crisis with the shadow of emigration looming over all that goes on. Now, 50 years later, Chris has returned to Enishmian with his camera to document what has changed and indeed what has not. This return visit uh, itself is documented by Kahlo Kuig and that film, Enishmian Idarungaling, will be broadcast on TG Kahar on Tuesday the 28th of December. Uh, delighted to be joined by Chris Rodmel, August Vulture of Kahlo Kuig Freshen, Atar Erandina Ling Anocht. Chris, let's start with yourself. You were 19. Um, when you landed on Inishmian for the first time in 1973, what brought the 19-year-old Chris Rodmel off to Inishmian? How did you know about it even? Well, well, good evening. Yeah, um, it was, um, well, fascination for something that I found in a, in a book that said it was the most primitive community in, in Europe at that time with the no electricity and, the run, and no running water. And that was a that was a trigger for me that it, it would be a good place to uh, tr- attempt to make a film, now, if and, you, to sh- and to shoot photo series. Yes, and and in, indeed we're going to uh, tweet some photographs. We have some photographs from that 1973 visit, and one in particular which is compared which is compared with the, the the current day. And I'll talk specifically about that shortly. But they're available to look at on at RTE Arena. But if you arrive into a community and say, "Hi, my name's Chris, and I believe you're the most primitive community in Western Europe. Can I take some pictures?" I, you know, you'd want to be. Uh, <laughs> You'd want to be a brave young man to say that, it, and you could, you might <laughs> you might understand why people might say, "I'm not sure that we really want you to look at us in that fashion, Chris." Thank you. I, absolutely, yeah. No, gentle, gently, gently. You know, we, I went in and, and just spent time a few days there, just getting my face seen and, and, and known, and then uh, and then started taking still photographs. And then by about day five or six, I started shooting some film, some moving image. You you refer to, uh, or your goal certainly at the time, and your what you do, I suppose, Chris, is visual anthropology. Explain that term to me. Well, visual anthropology. So you're you're looking at the you're looking at the community and expl- trying to explain the community in a visual medium, whether it be film, photography. Or, uh, or, or in fact, drawing. You know, it's 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 trying to 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 get to the soul of that community and get to the heart of it, and it, understand it. it uh, what was the reception like to uh, like for you back in nineteen seventy three? It was friendly. It was good. You know, I I, I was staying in a in a in a sort of B and B. A lady rented out a few rooms as a B and B. Um, the 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 people generally. Were very were very kind. Uh, some of them didn't understand me at all, or, or the English at all. Um, first language, obviously Irish, and uh, but generally they 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 were suspicious. And that, but uh, slowly I, I I made inroads. The the priest on the island spoke very good English, obviously, and he um, he sort of introduced me slowly, introduced me to a few people, and 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 then on. You know, we we mm. we. we we, I was there being seen. The camera was up on a tripod, filming the at the dock at the harbour, whatever. You know, yeah. it, it's 
So so there I was. Yeah, yeah. so people people got used to the presence of you with your camera, whether it was yeah. the, the for taking the moving photographs or indeed the stills. They got used to your to your presence there. When did you see that film of, of Chris's then, uh, Another Day? Well, the um, digital material from the 90s now being of interest again. So you have, um, it can be a great mm. uh, source of uh, material for potential documentaries, you know. So I had seen Chris's um, work online um, and uh, I was fascinated by, by by the footage and the quality of the images and the, the candid interviews um, that yeah. people uh, made. Yeah, and in fact, did you, did you recognise, or did I don't think you would have, I don't know what age you would have been in 1973, if at all, Carl, um, but did you recognise the Inishmian that was, was, was visible to us in Chris's film? I recognise that world. Um, I was born in 76, so the changes from 73 to now are the changes I grew up with in, in Connemara. Mm. Um, and they, they would be very similar. I mean, I think um, running water and electricity, rural rural electrification had happened in our village 15, 20 years before, so we weren't that much ahead um, when it comes to uh, modern life um, impinging on, on traditional society. Um, so the changes that Chris had documented, um, or the world Chris had documented, mm. It was certainly familiar to me and also fascinating because it was just a, a moment in time uh, and it brought me, I, I suppose, back to my youth uh, in many ways. And um, I guess we're all fascinated in our own way with our youth and uh, where we come from. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to a clip. This isn't, now, this is part of the film that we're talking about, um, but it in turn is a clip from Chris's, uh, Chris Rodmel's original film, Another Day. And here we hear um, a male voice talking to us about the nature of the work that is on the island or was available on the island in 1973. There is no work on this island which isn't very, very hard work as there are difficulties here that, that aren't anywhere else. There is no way on the islands at the moment that a fishing port can be established which means that they have to continue to work as they've been doing right down through the centuries from Corrigs. And there we have it, a clip from Another Day, the film that Chris Rodmel made about Inishmian back in 1973 and it is now part of the current film we're speaking about with Chris and Cahal O'Cuig, a film called Idarungaling, Inishmian, Idarungaling. How surprising a world was it to you, Chris? I mean, that description of the work, we get a sense of, of, of just the difficulty of island or the challenges of island life uh, at the time. No running water, no electricity, as Cahal was telling us. Um, but uh, yeah. how, 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 on you, how different a world was that from the England that you were coming from? Well, totally. I mean, it was a complete... Um, I, I, I think I was lucky. I'd hit this spot, in a way, because I, I there was one book I found to research it in the, in the local library, the Aran Islands, and it, it, it told me some of the information, but not, not... It gave me some insights, but not all. And to get there and come off the... I couldn't get, could there, couldn't get there on the ferry yet to hire a fishing boat because we could to get into the harbour with equipment. Mm. And walking onto that harbour and seeing different clothing uh, certainly felt as if I'd, I stepped back in time by 50 years, if not longer. Uh, you know, no, no cars on the island, I think one tractor at the time. So that it was a completely mm. different world. And there is a, there is a, a, I suppose, a challenge for you as a, as a young visual anthropologist at that time. Yes, you want to document this. 
you don't want to do either of two things. You don't want to exoticize it or romanticize it in any way. And and equally, you don't want to patronize it or look down on it in any way. How did you meet th- those challenges? It's a difficult balance, and you 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 hope your you hope your um, the questions you're asking the people and the and and the, and the where you're pointing the camera. Uh, are respectful to the community and as you say don't make it romanticize it too much uh, or whatever you know it's it's it, it's 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 a balance and you you know the limitations of the technology at that time and the limitations mm. of um of, of, of the budgets you have at that that as a student at that time one of the things you know, there was re- no electric Sorry, go so, ahead. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, well, you know, given there was no electricity, I couldn't do many interior shots because yeah. there was no way to light it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm sure one of the things that really struck me about the the clips from your your 1973 film was the sense of of really quite a pessimistic outlook by many of the islanders at the time that there would be no young people left on the island, that there would, you know, that the island would just the island life would just disappear. The the on uh, Inishmian atalling mila feha feha three the twenty twenty three Inishmian call is a vibrant alive place. It certainly is, but it's also a community that realizes how close they went to the brink and um, are, are, are actively taking measures to avoid that. The success of the secondary school there has been one example of how they've really turned the tide. Um, One of the biggest problems they had was that young students of secondary school age would have to go to the mainland to get their education and very often they wouldn't return. Um, Whereas now they've turned it around, they have a very successful secondary school and there are many, many students coming from cities all over Ireland to do, for um, a full immersive mm. experience living with a local family and doing their leaving cert through Irish. Uh, and of course, that's that's a great um, generator for the local economy, but also for the local community, because it means um, more teachers in school, better quality education, they can do more things. Uh, and it also brings life. Young people bring life to a community. So nearly everyone told us that the school in many ways was the was the, the beating heart of the community there. Yeah, it's a lovely story from a woman called Judah Ilinshi. It's us in Ishmani Oguk. And it is quite a story about how her life was, it literally turned around on a sixpence in the space of a day almost. Yes, yeah, she was very interesting. She had a very interesting story. She immigrated to, um, she was, she, 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 I think she was the first girl to go to the boarding school yes. in Spittle uh, when the education came in. And then she eventually immigrated to to uh, to San Francisco and then was married in Kerry for, for decades. And when her husband died in recent years, she came back and uh, she just found a new home. She found a very spiritual home on the island and was telling us how in her youth she was always told by the elders of the community that um, the, the, this island will be left to the seagulls one day. Mm. And she said, I'm so happy uh, in my mid-70s to see that that is not the case, that this, this island has a great future and a great community and that things are getting better. Uh, and it was very positive, I have to say. Yeah, and there's another there's another young family there. I can't remember their their, their names just offhand. He's a, he's a computer engineer and himself and his wife, they've both moved there. Uh, he works in computers in, in, in some way, shape or form. They've both lived there. They have children there and, and they're, they're absolutely delighted with the life that they've found for themselves, hoping that they can continue it on. Although I did notice that housing is a problem <laughs> on, on Inishmian as it is anywhere else. But let us listen to another unusual voice, perhaps, on Inishmian Feha Feha 3. Listen to this woman. It's as Brazil me. I'm going to be 13 years in this. I'm going to be Inishman to be in In the beginning, yes, I did find the Inishman a bit close on their own, but bit by bit, most of the people, after a while, I made friends and I have a, a good community that I can talk and I can do things together. They're there for you if you need them. And when you get to know them, they're your friend forever. That's Nalva Ifaharta there uh, from Inishmian Idaran Calling, the film that we're speaking about this evening. Uh, Chris uh, Rodmel, uh, what you met, uh, what you saw on Inishmian in 2023, 
a very different island. I mean, the presence of people like like Na, uh, like Nalia there that we heard, the presence of the young people who are in the secondary school, uh, and the kind of vibrancy that was there. What what was the most um, surprising aspect of things for you? Have we lost Chris, or is he still there? No, we seem to have lost him. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll come back. I'll come back to you, and maybe we can get him back up, uh, Cian. Um the, the 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 story that we do that we find there it really is one of uh, it really is one of it really is one of uh, a, a rejuvenated island, mostly because of those uh, the, the influx of new people. Yes, it certainly is. I mean, Nalva is a very interesting character. She's married to Owen, who's the, the principal of the local primary school. She's from Brazil and their children speak beautiful Portuguese and Irish. And, <laughs> and it's a real joy. Um, and we had them singing. Um, uh, they, they sang for us in Irish. And of course, they were all playing football and uh, they're great footballers, too. So that's great for the local football team in yeah, the future. I, I, I loved to, to hear she has beautiful Blas, <laughs> Blas Gunnamaris, oh, yeah. uh, but also how her, her English accent and slips from the, the Brazilian side into what it sounds to be like a very Inish Bian accent in air Lafreshen. Yeah, Kinsa, I guess. So I got the Mahani beyond symbol, um, Mosayana Shah, we shall sort of go in the Christian and go down, Winston and Ishmael Berganin. Mm. Um, and we certainly you certainly get that feeling uh, when you arrive there first um, but then slowly as you get to know people you realise that what they're, they're not actually um, uh, cold or shy or reluctant to talk they're just very protective of what they have yeah. and they realise what they nearly lost uh, I, when Chris came in, in 73 we have to remember um, islands were being there was forced um, exile from many islands in the west coast of Ireland the Blaskis we had it all over the, the western seaboard and um, people were very mm. very afraid that they would lose their community they would lose their island and they would lose their future um, so they're very protective of what they have they're very protective yeah. of the language they're very protective protective of the environment. They're really um, cautious and, and um, worried about any form of mass tourism coming in because the, the island can't sustain it. Um, but at, on, on the other hand, there's a thriving, living, real community here and uh, they it's it's an exceptional place. I mean, as Judas yeah. says in one line, they're a rock in the ocean and they're living on this rock. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, it, it is. It, it really it, it paints a wonderful picture. Now, I think we have Chris back there now. And I have two pictures up, uh, Chris, we, uh, on at our TA Arena. One yeah. is of the schoolroom when you took the picture back in 1973, and one is of the schoolroom uh, as part of this current film, Idaran Galing. I just had asked you as you dropped as, as you dropped out there, Chris. Uh, what was the biggest change for you on this return visit? Uh, the, the, I think the amount of young people they were, which I, I, I guess that that was because of the the secondary school the amount of young people that are around that there was it was only the probably 30 children on the island back in 73 in, in the in the primary school so that was the biggest change and the fact that the 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 knitting factories is mm. is, is 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 doing so well for the community in terms of the economy yeah, providing work. Yeah, Thorlach the Bachlum very much involved in that, and and we get the story mm. of of that particular st- uh, side of things as well. It is a fascinating film. Just one other question, Chris. Actually, linguistically, in terms of the language, did you notice any difference from your first visit to the second visit? Uh, no. Do you know? I think there's there's still it's 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 Irish first language first. Yeah, I I, I was very conscious of that and it, to, because I was producing a photo book at the same time I decided to do it in, in Gaelic and in, in English for ah, the, well, that text is, that is in there because yeah. there is no way that I can translate it kind of means in between the two times being with us but that doesn't fully translate it at all it's just a wonderful <laughs> title that can only be said in Irish yeah. I guess Thanks very much yeah, for being. I, thanks very much for being with us, Chris Coney. Did you want to say something just to pleasure. finish up? Uh, well, yeah, I, I like the idea. I mean, we came up with the title "Izergolyin" because it can also mean between two bodies of water, or commonly in Irish, "Izergolyin" mm. is uh, in the meantime. Um, so it's kind of both the idea of being between both two times of the past and the way they hold on to their past and treasure it, but are also looking towards the future and making are making damn sure they'll be there in fifty years' time. Well, listen, Tosulgan Galair, Gomeramich Bioig, and I'm sure Rich. Yeah, Gormilma got those. 
Agring and Nacht Kahal, Kahalo Kurig and Shin, Agus Chris Rodmel, and Inishman Idar and Galding will be on TG Kahar on Thursday, the 28th of December at 9.20 pm. And Chris's photo book on the island, Inishman uh, 1973 to 2023, is available on rrbphotobooks.com. Now we're at that time of year again when we cast an eye over the 12 months that are coming to an end in the arts and ask how was it for you tonight we begin with theatre in the company of reviewers Helen Meany and Chris O'Rourke and a selection box of highlights that range from growing up at a funeral home to an all-singing, all-dancing ship sitting across the uh, to see the ice caps melt. Delighted that Helen Meany and Chris O'Rourke are with me in studio this evening. Before we get into the, the specifics of your individual choices, 2023 overall, Chris, what did you think? Um, I, I think it was an unsettled year. Um, I think you have to remember that it was literally a year ago, a little over a year ago, that we just came out of COVID. Mm. Um, and I remember, I think, at the time, Wake was the big show. This is Pop Baby. I know it's coming back next year. If you haven't seen it, go and see it. Um, there was this huge sense of celebration. And that was a little over a year ago. So I think the the legacy of COVID, trying to get audiences back into the theatre, feeling safe in the theatre, trying to um, basically get back on its feet yeah. after that had an influence and an impact. So I think it was an uneven year, but we did have some really good moments in there. With, with, within all of that. And what what did you think of overall, Helen? Because I suppose what Chris says, that it's a, it's a good point regarding COVID because, first of all, there were shows that kind of had been put on hold, which some of which were ready to go then. But the, also there was a lack of... People couldn't forward plan because they didn't know when will the theatres actually be back open and when will we be able to give live performance again? It was a difficult one to kind of to set things in in motion. Yeah, really hard to navigate that mm. turn and, and also without new productions in the pipeline because of, because of the, the cessation of, of activity. So I felt as if this year t- took a while to begin almost, yeah. you know, that it was really by the time we got to, say, Cork Midsummer Festival and the Fringe that so we began to see the new work, the you know, interesting, exciting new work coming through. Um, but of course, not only coming out of the pandemic, but we're, you know, theatre artists have been hit by the cost of living crisis and the, and the housing crisis. So I think the, the theatre community are under an awful lot of pressure, mm. um, and it's it's really hard because, of course, as we know, they're all everybody's freelance. So and people are leaving the major cities, moving out of Dublin in particular. So that I, I feel then and that puts a lot of pressure on the established companies and organisations to to try and make work mm. that. Will bring in an audience, and that that's for their revenue as well. I think I think it's a difficult time for theatre and for the performing arts in general. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you certainly have laid out some of the challenges that are facing the theatre companies at the moment. No doubt about that. And actors and all of those involved in the in the uh, in that particular sector of the arts community. We've asked you to pick four of your favourite shows, and you both chose, in fact, Fun Home the Musical at the Gate Theatre. Helen, let, let's start with you. This is based on a, mem- uh, a memoir by Alison Bechtel, and we know that name, Bechtel. If you know anything about film studies, uh, Bechtel is the famous measure of a of a film in terms of the gender representation within it. What was uh, she doing in this particular, uh, or what story is she telling she's here? Telling her, her own. She's <laughs> telling her own story. Yes, she's telling, and, and that of her father, who was a closeted gay man and mm. to whom she was very, very close. And and this is, she's a, a, a graphic novelist and this is a graphic memoir. And she's looking back at her childhood and her um, her struggle to come out as gay. And, and she's linking that with her observation of her father's uh, difficulties. And he never came out. And and it's it's very, it's tragic. In, in, mm. So that it, it's, it's the joy of her finding freedom balanced by the sadness of his life and he lived a lie as a married as a as a straight married man and she and she manages to have to keep those two sides in you know in in a beautiful kind of counterpoint and with music and dancing and wit and you know. yeah and in some ways you know they often say that the the journey from page to stage is quite a difficult one she's going from graphic page to stage, stage. and she <laughs> managed it, well it's the production as well but i think it's there in 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 the writing it's done very well this adaptation of a graphic 
novel to the stage, Chris. It's it's absolutely incredible, and I think Roshan O'Brien did a great job um, with the um, did a great job with the directing of it mm. um, in terms of realizing those comic colours, those um, graphic novel sensibility, and keeping that very much uh, mm. alive. Um, and I think it, it 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 it's one of those wonderful pieces because musical theatre quite often, you know, the musical scene is just pure entertainment. It's meant to be light entertainment, um, but with this you get the fun and the serious brought together in this wonderful production like one of the songs for me the standout songs would be in Changing My Major where she sort of realises she's in love with you know somebody of this, this of the same sex it's just so beautifully done so you're getting this wonderful kitsch quality but this wonderful mm. seriousness you know and it just comes together perfectly in that production right so you both um, i think that's kind of top of top of both yeah. your lists in 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 one in 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 some ways let's go to uh, belfast next to northern ireland and the lyric theater uh, agreement. This is a play by Owen McCaffrey about the final days of the negotiation that led to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. You would think in some ways here, you know, how do you put an agreement up on stage, whatever about a graphic novel? Um, <laughs> an agreement is kind of, it's about clauses and subclauses and tiny little nuances in the language that used so that agreement is found. Yes. How was this presented to us? You think that this is not dramatic. But yeah. And so the, the, the challenge was to bring all of the negotiators into the room mm. and to create that classic dramatic, you know, thing that they can't get out. We've only, the, talk, the clock is ticking. So it's the last four days. Um, and so it's, you know, it gives us that sense of if you've ever thought what goes on in these negotiations, what was actually what was it actually like to be in that room? Uh, and this is what is being fictionally mm. sort of created for us. And actually, even though, of course, we know the outcome, the tension is very, very high um, and the performances are just excellent, particularly Andrea Irving as Mo Molum. Um, and it's and. Uh, uh, P- Patrick O'Kane as David Trimble is superb. Because that moment, you know, when you hear the moment described when David Trimble actually stood up and said, I'm going up to sign this agreement. If you're with me, to the members of his own party, walk behind me. If you're not, I'll be going up by myself. I mean, he was, he was, t- that takes phenomenal risk. That, that, that has a, an inbuilt tension in it. So I guess that's what we saw on stage, that type of thing. It is. And, and everybody trying to tell the other people what they wanted to hear in that moment, uh, with John Hume being really, really, really central and utterly dogged and very courageous. So it was really about a study of, of uh, compromise mm. and courage. Uh, to actually get this thing over the line. But there's a lot of humour in it as well, actually, particularly when when um, uh, Tony Blair's helicopter arrives, this big dramatic flurry, and, <laughs> and Mo Molum says, oh, here he is, the messiah. You know, So they're, they're bringing out all the tensions between Mo Molum and Tony Blair, as in they are, you know, dramatizing them and some of it some of it is taking license but so in order to relieve that tension for the audience there are some hilarious asides do we get the do do we get the famous the line that I remember at the time thinking really did you just say that you know this is not a time for soundbites but But. I (laughs) feel the hand of history on my shoulder and actually in Belfast in the lyric the whole audience just cracked up at that. <laughs> yeah. And it was just brilliantly timed and it was, it's very well written. It's very skillful to, to use docudrama in this way mm. and to use verbatim material actually from uh, the documents but also from from some of the negotiations. So it, it sounds as if it might be very dry but actually it's really gripping. Yeah, and, and they've had a great success with it in, in the lyric and, and they've won all sorts of awards yeah. and they're taking it to New York. Have we seen it, uh, have we seen it in, in Dublin yet? Did you see it? No. I, know I saw it in, in the lyric in yeah. Belfast and, and it's going to New York in the spring and then coming back to Belfast. So I, I really think yeah. it's an important piece of theatre. Yeah, I'm sure um, Tony the, Blair's yeah. scriptwriters didn't think they were writing a great joke <laughs> when they wrote that line for him. Chris, let's move uh, west now to the Galway International Arts Festival. One man show mm-hmm. that you've you've chosen in this case by Raymond Keane. Not a word. I think it's probably yes. the hint is in the title there. It, it is. It definitely is. I, I think, um, you know, we've had a lot of we have a lot of one-person shows mm. and I'm, you know, I've referred to some of them as the, the ready-made play and they seem to follow a very certain formula of, um, you know, it's somebody who's lost their mojo and has this midlife crisis or something and then basically comes and lives their best happy ever after life. And it's 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 not necessarily that everybody's telling the same story but often they're telling it in the same way. Yeah. Which, which is fine if you can tell it well. 
Um, and I think we've had some great, ex- you know, great examples. Stephen Jones in um, Fall to Earth, My Life with Bowie in the Dublin Fringe Festival. Katie Honan, How to Fall Flat in Your Face. Two excellent one-person shows this year. Absolutely fantastic. But Raymond Keane went above and beyond with not a word in which there is literally... No word. word. Well, he's such a physical performer anyway, exactly. uh, having trained with Jacques Lecoq, wasn't it, in uh, The Celebrated Mime Artist? Yes. So there's a huge physicality to what he does there's anyway. Sh- exactly. But it wasn't just the physicality. I think it was the whole theatricality, the costuming. Um, he wore a mask, just like, like a splurge of concrete. And, and essentially it's about a guy in 50s, 60s London coming back to his bedside at the end of the night and just missing home. Yeah, and you see, there would That's be it. no words if you're home in the, the, the uh, bed sit by yourself. Ult- it, it, yeah. You know, while it's a one-person show, it does have Alton O'Brien playing fiddle at the moment. Right. But it, it's, a, it's a story that tell, that's told through theatre and not through text. Okay, that so not amazing. a word then. Yeah. It, it's, as you say, theatrical is what it is. What it is. Um, staying with the Dublin Fringe, or, or staying with the festivals rather, the Dublin Fringe this time, Lie Low at the Peacock Theatre was a standout for you, Helen? Yes, it was. Um, it, it, it developed from a, a 10 minute piece and it's grown mm. and um, it, it was great to see it. It was a prime cut production. It was great to see it um, on the fringe, but being part of the Abbey's programme. Yeah, you know, back I, into the yeah I really liked it? that. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a play that uh, is unafraid to go into quite difficult territory about um, victim, a victim of sexual assault in one case and also a, an incident between brother and sister in their childhood. Which has uh, which has uh, overtones of mm. of uh, transgression, uh, incest almost. Yeah. Won't go into into the detail of it, but and we're left guessing, and it's it's quite uh, difficult to watch at yeah. times. Uh, really, really uncomfortable. And what's good about it is that it's so ambiguous. You don't really ever know who to believe of the two, of brother and sister, yeah. and what happened. And then at times it goes into a kind of a dreamlike, surreal dance sequence. So it's highly theatrical. Yeah. Kira Elizabeth um, Smith, the writer here. And sadly, Michael Patrick, who was the, the actor who had originally played the part, he became ill during yes, that period. Yes, and he did. Yeah. And yeah, he's very talented. So that, that they had to deal with all of that. But, you know, for me, as a, as a new piece of writing, it, it really stood out because yeah. it, was, it was quite brave. Um, as well. Hot House by Malaprop, the next highlight mm. from you. What stood out for you in, this, in the case of this particular piece, Chris? It was just, in terms of ingenuity, inventiveness, in terms of uh, excitement, energy, it, it just simply had it all. It, you know, I think it's no, it's no coincidence that both The Gate and The Abbey this year had light comedies mm. as their mm. theatre festival headliners. Um, because I think people with COVID, they were looking to be entertained and they were looking for something really interesting. Hot House is aware the conversation on global warming hasn't gone away. We still need to talk about it. But what they did was they created this absolutely ingenious um, setup whereby it's a ship on a cruise to see the ice caps melting. And there's, there's issues around generational trauma in it, but really you just come away thinking of, of the jokes, of the music, of the song and dance. And you, 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 you're basically, you're given this wonderful... Um, lesson and ask the question your values on global warming but you come away feeling that was just absolutely fantastic for yeah. and, and again a bit like the agreement to play that Helen was talking about earlier on it could be a topic that you might feel you're being preached at or that exactly. it's very worthy but it manages to avoid um, those those traps um, I, I remember this uh, speaking to Dan Colley about uh, Lost Lear and I must say it was sounded like a fascinating piece I didn't get a chance to see it just explain the, the ideas behind it because it was a very touching story here, Helen. Very touching, um, and and something that many people will be familiar with of having a parent with Alzheimer's or suffering mm. with dementia. And in, in this case, uh, the parent is a, a, a former actress who believes uh, she wants to revisit the role of King Lear. I mean, she may or may not have ever played it, but this is what she does every day in the nursing home. And her son goes to visit and he has to, played by Peter Daly, and he has to take all of some of the other roles, including Cordelia. he is a reluctant actor. He's very reluctant in this. And then he he has to get into it. Mm. And it's, so there's a lot of humour and and theatrical in-jokes, but it's actually a really universal story. And it's it's so beautifully uh, staged by Dan Colley. And the reason I'm mentioning it this time, because it was in the Theatre Festival last year, but it's actually had a 10 venue tour 
this autumn. So more people would have seen it this yes, year. Yes, yeah, because um, it started in their local yeah. venue. And, and it began great. in the Riverbank Arts Centre. Yes, in, in, yeah. In and, and it was major, yeah. got major support yeah. from them. So I, I just wanted to mention that as an example of the importance of taking these shows out that start in the Theatre Festival or the Fringe out around Getting the country. Getting them out, out into um, venues yeah, around the country. Yeah, really, because it's a really beautiful, delicate, poignant work. Uh, Chris, the Dublin Dance Festival provided you with your fourth uh, highlight, the Pan Pan show, The Sudden. Now, (laughs) Pan Pan will always involve the audience, uh, in my experience, in in their performances. But what was involved in The Sudden? Well, The Sudden was really, um, it was just brilliantly... It was a multidisciplinary piece of dance theatre and it was exploring that relationship between the audience and the performance. And and it begins with this lovely deceit where certain audience members are brought on stage as you come into the into theatre. They're given T-shirts and they have a bit of, you know, uh, alcohol-free champagne and they chat away because it's the opening night of a show. And then they slowly over time interrogate... Uh, performance, they interrogate the relationship between the audience and performance. Mm. They have a lovely go at people coming in late and I thought that was brilliant because it's one of my personal please know, tell me somebody's phone went off and they I was hoping it over. would but of course the one night it didn't nah. that night but um, but it was brilliantly um, it was brilliantly executed and, and, and it's a little bit one of the things I find is people often think with dance so what am I supposed to be looking mm. at and it's the difference between say looking at a Jackson Pollock and looking at a representational piece you don't, you don't look for the same things you see what it brings to you you just go in and enjoy it and pam pam hit you with everything well there you go you so know, for, many things for such a mixed year there certainly were some very fine highlights in, in mm. the four that each of you have chosen there so a, a quick look forward to 2024 a couple of things yeah. uh, Chris well I think uh, one of the things I'm really really looking forward to is Hamam yeah which, we spoke with Louise Lowe about it yeah. the other night um, because Sounds that will probably kick off next year for the Abbey it just um, about makes it into uh, just about <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, we should, we should, I suppose yeah. we should point out that what it is it's basically the Battle of Dublin it's the, the battle in which Cahill Brew was killed and, but it's yeah. set in this hammam the, an actual hotel of the time uh, exactly uh, yeah and, and I think that's that's starting this weekend but it, it goes yeah. into January um, we what also have Crap's Last Tape Stephen, Stephen Ray. Ray, which is coming. That sounds really, really good. Um, That's a landmark production, isn't it? Yeah, yes. I think the Abbey have taken a, a risk, I think, with their programme for next year, which is, as I understand it, it's seven plays by six women writers to celebrate 120 years of the Abbey Theatre. Um, and, you know, we don't have time to go all into it, but I think that brings a lot of baggage with it that, you know, people will might be curious about. Hmm. Um, and the Gate have a really interesting programme with, they begins with the president, and then there's the new Emma Donoghue piece, and what's that? Tony Baker. Let Helen pick it up Amer- from... American, really uh, a fantastic American playwright called Annie Baker, getting, you know, I think her, this would be the first time for her work to be shown here, hmm. so that's really great. Uh, and, and, and the uh, uh, Emma Donoghue adaptation. So any, yeah. Anything yeah. that you would add, that you would like to add into what Chris has been saying something that you're looking forward to in 2024? I think those two so far because a lot of the other programmes haven't haven't really been announced yet but I'll also be at Hamam on Saturday really looking forward to that. Kind of missed Anu this year. They they were were a bit absent. Yeah so so it'll be good it'll be good to see them back in full flight with that. Helen and Chris thank you so much. Hope that 2024 brings you lots of happy theatrical experiences and thanks so much for sharing your happinesses from 2023 with us tonight. Closing Time and The Heart of Saturday Night are just two of the albums released by Tom Waits on Asylum Records. Then in the early 1980s, Waits was searching for a new sound. He left Asylum, split with his long-term manager and married the writer Kathleen Brennan. Island Records signed him up and released five albums over ten years, including the critically acclaimed Swordfish Trombones, Rain Dogs and Frank's Wild Years. Recently, Universal Music re-released the albums that were mastered by Waits and Kathleen, making them available on vinyl for the first time they, since they originally came out. With me in studio this evening is Pat Carty to discuss, to discuss some of these albums and how they stand up today. But before we even say a word about him, let's listen to him. The smart man is on home and the moon is in the street the shadow boys are breaking all the laws And you're east of East St. Louis And the wind is making speeches And the 
Tom Waits at his mm. sultry voice. Absolutely. Just let, best. It play, let it play, John. Nobody <laughs> wants to hear us. No, um, time. That's from the, the middle of the three albums we were going to talk about. That's from Rain Dogs, mm-hmm. in fact. But let's, let's to, to look a bit at where this all fits into the Tom Waits story in some ways. Um, he was with Asylum since his debut, Closing Time. <laughs> that, and that song sounds as if it could be from Closing Time, That's doesn't true, it? Yeah, yeah. That album is 50 this year. But he was still releasing um, hit albums. Why did he want to leave Asylum to go to Ireland? Well, I, I think you're using the word hit maybe a bit loosely there. I'm, mm. I'm not sure he had a, he had a huge audience. He was, he was, I suppose he was what you call a cult figure. Yeah. But he felt... Would closing time not have been, or maybe that came, maybe, uh, closing, maybe retrospectively, you know, <clears throat> was it? Kind of like, yeah, I suppose kind of like a Velvet Underground kind of thing. It, it eventually sold him. Mm. It just took 50 years <laughs> to do it, you know. <laughs> and uh, he, 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 he himself felt he kind of was painting himself into a corner. Artistically, he was just kind to him. Now, I don't agree with him, but to him, he was repeat. He felt he was repeating himself. He'd had this character established to this kind of uh, slightly inebriated piano mm. player in a saloon that you could put a few dollars into the glass and he'd sing you a song and tell you a few jokes, that kind of thing. And he had the hat and the coat and all that kind of thing. And that was how people imagined him. And then, you know, so he was coming to the end of this Electra. <clears throat> Uh, contract that he had since closing time and he was working on One from the Heart which was a movie made by Francis Ford Coppola and on the set of that he meets Kathleen Brennan who becomes his wife he said it was love at first sight when she walked in the door and they were engaged within a week so she must have thought he was alright as well and she she kind of influenced him in an, in an awful lot of ways first of all she changed his listening habits. So she would, according to him, introduced him to things like Captain Beefheart, uh, Harry Patch, who was this outside kind of composer who came up with his own scale Mm. and things like that, his own instruments. And also then she encouraged him to really go out on his own. So to cut off ties from, say, his old manager, Herb Cohen, who Tom felt was... uh, maybe dipping in the till a small bit, and uh, also his longtime producer, Bones Howe, and just to really go out into the hedgerow altogether. And then the other thing, I suppose it is important to remember that Kathleen Brennan herself was a writer, so she was yeah. going to encourage him into this ca- kind of mm. more... Uh, well, she would end up writing a lot of songs with him. Yeah. And, and sometimes, the, particularly the albums that we're going to talk about, they feel, in to me, like theatrical performances. There's a sense of that off them. Yeah, or, or even cinematic approach almost mm. because he, you know, he really got serious not serious I suppose but he started to do a lot of acting in this period as well he turned up in, in Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish yeah. and Outsiders and things like that and, and uh, what's that the one with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep the one where they're uh, down their look don't know. Oh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, he's in it anyway. But um, yeah, the cinematic approach. I mean, when you when you say theatrical, the third album in this uh, series is actually designed as a stage show. It was first of all put on as a play, yeah. as a musical, and then he went in and recorded. Then that's Frank Wild Years. Frank's Wild Years, the third one. Well, let's listen how he lays out his stall at the be- <laughs> at the yeah. beginning of Swordfish Trombones. This is sort now, of the uh, now I know we just played Time when that lovely, which has that kind of laid back feel of the, the, the piano player yeah. with the glass of whiskey up on the top of the piano. <laughs> it has that feel. Of, but on, remember, Smoke that he was coming out of that. Yeah. But this is what his first track sounded like on Swordfish Trombones. Life. 
You wouldn't, you wouldn't catch the milkman whistling that one too often, <laughs> no, right? That is Underground, the opening track on Swordfish Trombones, uh, the first of the Island Years yeah. albums of Tom Waits. Pat Carthy wishes in studio this evening. By the way, if you if you want to watch us as well as as well as listen to us, you can do so on rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash watch hyphen live. Um, uh, you know, it's impossible when you, when you listen to that. Mm. I said it, it it veers towards the experimental times. He laid out the stall there. He said, here's the direction yeah. I'm going in now. Yeah. And that song has a million and one directions within it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I wrote there recently that um, he went from this South piano player to a guy who is down a back street uh, buying the skeleton of John Merrick and then using it as a percussion <laughs> instrument in one of these things. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there are cowbells in there, but there are all sorts of percussion instruments yeah, The marimba is a big deal there. Yeah, and, and is, is he just eating, hitting tin cans at well, times as well? The, the song that comes after it, surely, one of the major instruments on it is a chair being scraped across the floor of the studio. So that'll give you some idea of what was going on. I mean, this marimba thing is a kind of like a, mm. it's like a xylophone in a bad mood. And, you know, he's using that as percu- it's a percussion instrument, but he's using it as a melodic instrument in a lot of this. And I mean, there's a song on that album called uh, 16 Shells from a 30-06, and one of the lyrics in it talks about making a ladder from a pawn shop marimba. And that kind of sums up really what he's doing yeah, here. And, and, and surely that you talk about too, it's spoken for the most part. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, it's, it's spoken for at least half of the song before it, it moves into something else. However, let us not get stuck just in swordfish trombone. Sure. We'll go on to to Rain Dogs. We heard time from it earlier on. Let's have a listen to Blind Love from the second album that we're chatting about. Now you go It's hotels and whiskey and sad luck days and I don't care if they miss me I never remember their names They say if you get far enough away country artist and um, a man on that track with him who's celebrating his 80th birthday this very day. That's right, Mr Keith Richards is 80 today. Who would have thought that? But he's on three tracks on that album and, uh, you know, the the, the the distance between what Tom Waits was doing here and what the Stones were doing at the time in the middle mm. of the 80s when they were making their worst records, you know, so it must have been a great relief for Keith Richards to come on and do this. And he would work with him again. He's on Bone Machine, which is an album that came out later on. And uh, he's on his most recent album as well. They became firm friends. And Richards actually, when he made his solo records, uh, said thanks to Waits because it was listening to all this stuff that made him think, well, I can just do whatever I like because this is what Tom is doing. Yeah, by the way, and, and he was focusing, and again, you don't get it so much on Blind Love. Mm. Um, maybe you, you get it on, on some of the earlier tracks from from uh, Swordfish Trombones. He was focusing on his acting at this point in time. He mm. had a young family. And just to go back to the question you were asking, Ironweed, I believe, Ironweed, is the album, the is, the, one, yeah. is the film, rather, that you were thinking that's about, Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. Um, He's in Shortcuts as well. Do you remember that? He's very good in that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of response were the Island Years albums getting from, audiences well from audiences I mean he was get. I think he was getting a whole new audience not a huge audience but critically mm. they were absolutely adored I mean they, they were being called the best albums of the year he he was given songwriter of the year by Rolling Stone the year Rain Dogs came out the NME raved about it Spin Magazine at the end of the 80s 
called uh, Swordfish Trombones or Rain Dogs. I'm not sure which one. Mm. One of the best albums of all time. So th- these things were beloved. And his whole career after that, since then, stems from here. You know? Yeah, and I mean, we were talking about another track on on the, uh, on the Rain Dogs, mm. Downtown Train. Uh, where yeah. There's definitely, he's, he's channeling his inner Bruce Springsteen oh, I think there. so, yeah. There are tracks on Swordfish Trombones. I found myself in the neighbourhood. I thought, this is kind of Randy Newman's... Yes. Sli- yeah. But his slightly more problematic younger brother. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well, I think that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I didn't think of that. That's pretty good. I mean, there's stuff like Gin Soak Boy on on, uh, mm. on Swordfish Trombones, which is Howlin' Wolf, really. And but um, he's pushing he's pushing it beyond. He's really pushing the limits of experimentation and instrumentation and well, all of them. Well, also with his voice as well. I think that that thing that you mentioned about acting, like that there's songs, there's songs on on Frank's Wild Years, like Temptation, where he goes from one type of voice mm. where he's shouting and roaring to this this high pitched voice, and then there's a there's a song on there where he's um, He's channeling, um, you know, almost Irish ballad singers and things like that. He, he's he's become an actor in his voice, if you know what I mean. This character actor, he's using his voice as another instrument in this. How about uh, Cacophony as Ambience behind it and then the voice over the top? All right, Cacophony as Ambience. Have a listen to a little bit of I'll Take New York before we finish up. There's a Christmas present sorted for everybody. That's enough experimentation for one minute for sure. Um, that is the song I'll Take New York uh, from the third of the Island's Years album that we're speaking about this evening. That's from Frank's Wild Years. Frank's Wild Years, nine songs. Uh, Brennan, uh, Kathleen Brennan was deeply involved in the writing yeah. of this. But Frank's Wild Years had existed in a previous form on Swordfish Trombones, hadn't it? Wasn't That's it a right, song? Yeah. A kind of a, like a short story, it feels like. It is, me. yeah. The, the music on that, that song is almost straightforward. It's like Jimmy Smith, the organ player, mm. is in the background, or the sound of him is in the background. Um, Frank is, seems a settled guy, he's selling uh, shirts, um, he has a wife at home, they drink Bloody Marys in the evening, but then one day he has enough, sets fire to the house, burns it down, uh, the dog included, mm. and heads out the highway. And there's another image that really is what he did to his career. He kind of set fire to it and headed off in the highway. Yeah, and, and did did they, did um, Frank's Wild Years make it as a theatre show? You said it was kind yeah, of... Yeah, it was, it, it, was, it, it ran in Chicago with Waits as, as Frank. Mm. And then uh, the reviews were a bit lukewarm. Lukewarm. And it was plans to go to New York, but it didn't happen. So instead he went and recorded it and then toured it and played here in the Olympia. All right. On, on that tour. And then there's an album then, Big Time, which includes, I think, some material taken from the Olympia. So are the island, where would you put the island years just in 10 seconds in terms of Wace's career? How important? Or how the most important part of it, I would think. And what should be handed out in school to anyone studying music or anyone thinking they're an artist, this is the way to go. Don't worry about commercialism. Do what's inside you. Do what's inside you. There's good advice. Tom Waits, the Island Years is what Pat Carty has been speaking to us about this evening. And that brings us to the end of tonight's programme. Leah Murphy researched. Mary Elizabeth Bruton was the broadcast coordinator. Cara O'Hare was on sound. And tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock, here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.